KCIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. Proudly student and listener-supported community radio. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Travel so hard, ooh, Lord, travel so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Ooh, Lord, travel so hard, ooh, Lord, travel so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, and thank you, listeners out there, for all your involvement and all your feedback. As you know, we go to podcast two, SoundCloud, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, and I love to hear your questions and your comments. Today, we're delighted to highlight two phenomenal women from very different areas, but uh, but I think you'll find some commonality between them. And and the first who is my guest right now, excitingly, is uh, Reverend Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, who is the 44th moderator of the United Church of Canada. The United Church of Canada is still Canada's largest Protestant denomination. So welcome, Carmen, to the Radical Reverend Show. Thanks, Sherry. So let's talk about you. Uh, tell us, tell the listeners about your background, because it's fascinating. And of course, sure. we're in Toronto, but but you're a BC girl. So talk about that. I am. My Salal brush roots are hard to pull out. <laughs> um, so I was born in Alert Bay, which is a small, uh, used to be mainly fishing village off the northeast coast of Vancouver Island on Cormorant Island, um, which is the traditional ancestral and unceded territories of the Numgus First Nation. Um, it's the place where my father's grandfather settled as a British homesteader. And, um, but I am a member of the Heltzik First Nation, which is from the central coast of British Columbia. We traditionally uh, used about 25,000 linear kilometers of coastline um, up all the fjords and inlets of the central coast of British Columbia. Um, they estimate that there was uh, between 25 and 35,000 of our people about 160 years ago, and we were um, infected with smallpox, and the government did not uh, do quarantine measures, even though they knew how to quarantine to stop smallpox. And so uh, by the turn of the century, there were less than 400 of us left. And um, the church played a role in the stabilization and recovery of our people. So um, it's not without nuance, of course, but the story I was told uh, by my family is that my great-grandfather, um, Harry Humchit, was part of a delegation of hereditary chiefs from different village sites that went to the Methodist mission post at what is now Balabala. 
and said, we understand that uh, you have medicine that could save us, but that that medicine does not come without strings attached. So tell us about Christianity, tell us about your faith, and we will make a decision for ourselves if we want to come here and take your medicine or if we are going to go back to our village sites and try and save ourselves. And so um, allegedly they had a three-week-long Bible study that was in mixed Hestuchla, um, Chinook, and English. And they said that there was nothing in the Bible that was inconsistent with our traditional way of life. And in fact, that there was this concept of forgiveness that we didn't have in our culture. And they saw that as a way out of the perpetual warfare we'd been in, especially with the Haida and the Coast Salish, the Southern Coast Salish. So um, many of those villages uh, converted to Christianity wholesale and moved to Bella Bella. Um, the sad part of that story is that um, the missionaries and the Indian agents then went to the remaining Hiltzuk, uh village sites and burned them down as a way to coerce them to joining the rest of the tribes. So um, as always, not an easy story, um, but not the not the typical we converted to Christianity because of residential schools. Um, I mean, all of it was coercive because like using Christianity is a survival tactic from genocide is also not a good news story, but there you have it. That's how we ended up indigenous and Christian in my people. Um, I So I'm third generation United Church on both sides of my family, which is about as far back as you can go in a 97-year-old church. I uh, My mom is a survivor of the 60s scoop. She was adopted by a non-indigenous family as a teenager. She, she was fostered as a teenager and then later adopted her as an adult. And uh, so my adopted maternal grandfather was the United Church minister, the Reverend Dr. Bob Wallace, who was at Rosedale United in Toronto for the last 17 years of his ministry before he retired. Um, and then like many retired ministers went on to have like three or four other pastoral charges. But um, so I was raised uh very United Church. My grandmother on my dad's side was like chair of the UCW in Alert Bay, uh, was the head housekeeper at Union College during the Depression. So my United Church roots are strong. Um, I was really involved as a young person in the church. I, uh, especially uh, in high school, I was involved with my local youth group, but also was a youth rep to Presbytery and to BC Conference. Uh, I went to youth forum in grade 11. And um, then, like many students, when I moved away to go to university, I stopped going to church. Um, I think that has more to do with the fact that I moved to Texas and even going to United Methodist Church or United Church of Christ didn't feel like my worship home. And um, but I also um, I've been fairly uh, open about this at this point in my life. I also really started to struggle with drugs and alcohol at that point in my life. And so um, like many young Indigenous people, I think that was uh, part of dealing with the generational legacy of trauma and pain in our communities. And um, and it also existed in my, my dad's side of the family that suffered a lot of trauma and loss as well. Um, so I started drinking about two years after my parents quit and, um, and was raised with a lot of economic stability. And even though things were definitely not always easy with my parents, I never for a second doubted that they loved me and that they didn't give me every opportunity um, 
And so uh, I think unlike a lot of young indigenous women, I kind of made the corner. And so, um, and unlike my older brother who didn't make the corner and he actually um, died by suicide in uh, 2000, April, 2001. Um, so I got sober about six months after that. And my first Sunday sober, I decided um, I'd been, you know, in and out of 12-step programs and rehab and everything in my earlier 20s. And I was six days sober and I decided I was also going to go back to church because church had been such a safe place for me. And that was the place I knew to get in touch with the higher power that they talk about in 12-step programs. And I went and it was the first Sunday of Advent and... The, Rever the late Reverend Sharon Moore Cook was the interim minister at the congregation in Ladner. And I went and she was preaching about the fact that the possibility of change was on the horizon, but that change hadn't come yet. And I just burst into tears and I was this huge sobbing mess. And then all of a sudden, I just had this overwhelming peace was like, oh, could you can be a minister now? And I was like, what? just happened. And so I went into her office and I was like, you don't know me. I've never been to church here before, but this just happened to me. And she was like, well, have you ever felt a call to ministry before? And I was like, well, yeah, in high school, but like, lady, I haven't been to church in eight years. I'm six days sober. <laughs> like this, I am, I'm a walking hot mess. This is not what ministry looks like in my head. And she's like, well, sometimes our lives go off track a little bit when we're trying to avoid that call from God. So let's not dismiss it and let's just keep talking. And so I kept going back and I cried every Sunday between Advent and Easter. Um, I made an adult profession of faith um, at Easter the next year. It's not, I had never been confirmed as a high schooler despite being really involved in the church. It's why I ended up at Youth Forum instead of a delegate to General Council in 1992. And um yeah, I left my riveting career as a CPA student at uh, KPMG and <laughs> actually I got fired, but that's a whole other story. Um, not for doing anything unethical. It was more a mismatch with my partner that I worked with. But um, I think that also saved my life. And by then I knew I wanted to go to the Vancouver School of Theology and, and do my MDiv and to enter into ministry. So the rest just sort of took off from there. I did the discernment process with my congregation and my presbytery and uh, started at VST in September of 2003 and uh, graduated and was ordained to further study in May of 2007. Speaking um, and listening, mainly just <laughs> listening uh, to uh, this amazing woman, uh, Reverend Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, who is the new monitor moderator of the United Church of Canada. Uh, it's 44th and she's there for three years or here for three years, or somewhere for three years in that yeah. role. Uh, so, I mean, you, your background, I, I, I know that what listeners are probably thinking about now is how do you square this circle of Indigenous and Christianity? And I, many people, especially in, in some dense urban centres like Toronto or Vancouver, uh, don't don't get that there is a very large Christian community in the Indigenous community. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit. Talk about how those two worlds come together for you. Yeah. Um, it's a real mixed blessing, I think. Um, there, yeah, there are so many stories that I've heard from Indigenous elders and survivors of residential schools who 
find uh, a liberative aspect in the Christian story, despite the abuses that they suffered at residential school. Because even though there was spiritual abuse that was happening in addition to the physical and sexual abuses that were happening, uh, I would say that every student of residential school was spiritually abused um, and most were physically and or sexually abused, uh, that somehow there are brilliant young minds grasped that these people were not the Christ. These people were not the the whole Christian story. And so many, so many stories of like children being abused and having the, like the physical presence of Jesus, like holding their hands as they're being abused and saying like, I am with you. And uh, which is heartbreaking you know, and um, and it's not unique. There's so many stories throughout history of people feeling the tangible presence of God or Jesus with them in times of immense trauma and abuse and warfare. And um, that is true for many of our um, elders and survivors of residential schools at the same time as they were so terribly abused. And so I think for a lot of Indigenous people, they see the value and the um and feel that faith connection to the christian story at the same time as they're very righteously angry with the church right um i also was just recently at the first uh, national gathering of unmarked graves uh, for this office of the special interlocutor that's been appointed as kim murray who's a mohawk woman she's phenomenal it's been appointed by Justice Canada to investigate the unmarked graves, and um, one of the one of the panelists in one of the sessions was talking about how um, our children, when they were forcibly removed from their families and sent to residential schools, knew that ritual was important, but they didn't have. In fact, they were being prevented from speaking our own languages, learning our own customs, and so what they learned was Christian ritual. And that became sort of this like hybrid experience of they knew that spirituality and ritual was important. And so they took what was offered to them. And I think that is true too. Um, I probably wrote my PhD dissertation trying to unpack the story of like, how can I be indigenous and Christian? Um, I mean, conceptually, it was about comparing and contrasting in general, the ways that indigenous worldviews are, different from Euro-Christian worldviews um, and sort of taking enlightenment thinkers like Hume and Kant and Descartes and saying, okay, like what are the general differences between those European thinkers and our traditional cultures? And if we looked at Christian missions specifically through the eyes of a traditional indigenous worldview, how could we make it more liberative and inclusive? Um, so it'd be avoiding things like binary dualisms and justified truth claims and, um, and so I think there's still hope for the church yet because we are Christian. So, so Carmen, um, the United Church has had a history with residential schools and has had a history with, with First Nations and Indigenous. Uh, talk about that because we were one of the first churches to apologize, but it was not accepted. So maybe just clue in our listeners as to what that history looks like and how you see that moving ahead. What's next? 
Sure. So we um, started having an intense round of national consultations within the Indigenous Church starting in the late 70s and early 80s. And at General Council in 1986, um, in response to a demand that was made by Alberta Billy, among others, um, that the church apologize for its complicity in colonization. Um, Bob, the very Reverend Bob Smith, who was then moderator, made an apology on behalf of the church to Indigenous people in Canada. And at the next General Council, which was in uh, 1988, the Indigenous elders gathered and they said that um, it needed to be a living amends and that they would accept the apology. No, they would acknowledge the apology, but not accept it because they needed to see actions behind the words. And um, I don't think that the church has done an excellent job of unpacking what that has meant. And so um, we've lost probably two generations of Indigenous elders waiting and waiting and waiting for the non-Indigenous church to really get to understand the nature of uh, what reparations might look like. Um, we've been really focused over the last 10 years or so on the comprehensive claims um, and settlement process for the abuse that happened at residential schools and then Truth and Reconciliation Commission and now Unmarked Graves. Um, we have made a decision as a church to complete or to create sort of a standalone, autonomous, self-determining Indigenous church as part of almost like a parallel structure within the United Church of Canada. But it, through all of that over the last 40 years, I would say the Indigenous church has been really decimated in, this, in the same way that a lot of other rural churches have also been decimated. Um, and so I don't know if it's too little too late, but um, there's definitely... Uh, there's definitely still a lot of work to do. Um, and I think it comes to the nature of discussing what do we mean by reconciliation? Um, what is the United Church's stance on reparations, uh, not just for you know, the abuse settlement claims, but also uh, for the fact that we still own churches on reserve lands and um, the fact that all of our churches are actually on traditional unceded <laughs> or ceded uh, territories of Indigenous people, depending, I mean, in BC, it's almost guaranteed to be unceded land, but, you know, there's churches on treaty lands everywhere else in the country. And so I, we still have a lot of work to do. And I think um, through our deepening commitment to become an anti-racist and intercultural church, like the normative, like, white and um, also, I think newcomer uh, churches is just now coming to grapple with like, what does that all really mean? Uh, speaking to the actually now very reverend um, Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, uh, moderator of the United Church and the 44th one to, uh, and the second, only the second Indigenous moderator and the first Indigenous woman moderator. So it's all very exciting. Uh, looking ahead in a broader sense, we all know the stats. Uh, we know that people go to church less and less often. Uh, we know that uh, congregations are struggling coming out of COVID. Uh, we know, as you've just pointed out, that it's difficult, especially in rural areas, to get clergy or leadership 
there's all sorts of issues. You got three years, Carmen. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> um, I'm probably going to focus on climate change because I think we have a seven and a half year window to really do a 180 to get to net zero by 2050 as a country. And if we don't do that, the rest of it's kind of moot. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, one of the things that I love about our denomination is that's not going to be a hard sell for our people. You know, we don't have a ton of climate deniers in the United Church of Canada, and we've actually just made a commitment this summer to be, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 80% as a denomination by 2030. Um, and you know, I think part of it will be um, bringing that way of being as an Indigenous woman and seeing the both and in the world and um, letting people's experiences be their own experiences um, and that your truth doesn't necessarily nullify my truth or vice versa are all like ways of being that I bring to my work. But um it will it will be focused on climate and on listening to indigenous people about being better stewards of the earth because we have to for our survival and especially for our children and grandchildren's survival. Um, you know, right now with all of the you know increased like weather events and natural disasters that are happening that we can now link to anthropogenic climate change. Those are all happening from the effects of our climate um, or greenhouse gas emissions in the 1980s. So we've got like a really rough 40 or 50 years ahead of us as we learn to adapt to living in a radically altered world. Um, but unless we want to pass the tipping point, we have to make some big changes. And I think part of that is public education. Um, I've been working a lot with um, Seth Klein at the Climate Emergency Unit. And they did some studies and found that um, the majority of people, when asked what they can do individually to mitigate climate change, their answer was recycling, which is not the correct answer. 65% um, of our global greenhouse gas emissions in Canada come from stationary combustion, which is how we heat and cool buildings. And 28% comes from driving vehicles. Um, only 3% comes from flying. And so like when you look at uh, people suggesting that we should not ever fly anywhere for United Church meetings, I mean, really 3% of the population and that's 3% of our greenhouse gas emissions, that's really a rounding error in terms of our national greenhouse gas emissions. And so where we can have the biggest impact is in how we heat and cool our buildings and the types of vehicles that we drive. Um, so I think learning as much as we can about where's the biggest impact that we can have in terms of reducing our uh, climate footprint. And then um, the other part, and I would love to hear your take on this, Sherry, is like giving our politicians the uh, backing that they need to engage in regulatory change, right? Because we are not getting there through voluntary uh, mitigation strategies. And I think that our most important option that we have is to engage politically. And, you know, we have to be careful in the church that we're not doing that more than 10% of the time so we don't lose our charitable status or whatever. But I do think the church has a space and a, and a right to reclaim a, a voice of moral authority in the public sphere around, we have a, you know, our, our politicians have a moral obligation to Canadians to regulate 
climate mitigation strategies to save to save us and to save our existence on the planet. And, you know, we like to say that, you know, we're a smaller G7 country or like India or China are not doing things fast enough. And, you know, trying to sell liquefied natural gas to China when they could leapfrog over us and use renewables. And they don't have to have the same transition story as Canada has had, where we brought in natural gas 50 years ago because it was cleaner because there's even cleaner things that we can do now and that they can do now um i would love to see somebody take up bill gates on his clean nuclear energy program um i would love to see canada take up bill gates if that's not going to work with china for all kinds of reasons um but we really need our politicians to stand up and to to know that the people are behind them to take some bold action on regulatory changes in canada um because we we can't just be pointing fingers and saying other people aren't doing it fast enough, so we're we're justified in in being slow. Yeah, I'm speaking here to uh, the very Reverend uh, Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, forty fourth moderator of the United Church of Canada, uh, and uh, boy, there's that's another conversation for another hour. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're certainly, I mean, we're we're still subsidizing to the tune of many billions the oil and gas industry in this country, and. And I and I have said and have a lot to say about lobbying um, and how we are not present in the halls of power. We're just not. Um, but we can talk about that after. I we just have a few minutes left. And really, what I want to also hear is full circle right back to kind of your home ministry in, in Vancouver's downtown East Side because yeah. the work there. I mean, I I just spoke there this summer for the Spirit Pride event, which was so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you, you know, you, like we in Toronto, have an op- opioid crisis on our hands. We have people dying in our streets. And uh, what? And you worked in the midst of that. Talk about that ministry that really spawned you and that brought you here. Yeah. So the United Church is really fond of saying it's Canada's poorest urban postal code in the downtown side of Vancouver. Um, I think I just... Um, buried the lead there. We've always said it's Canada's poorest postal code, but in fact, it's Canada's poorest urban postal code because we have several reserves in the country that have a lower um, median income rate. But um, it's a highly, highly impoverished community, um, very high levels of uh, people who use substances, people who are suffering with mental illness and other mental health challenges, uh, deeply entrenched poverty, and um, a huge racialization of poverty and addiction. So um, 40% of the community identifies as Indigenous. Um, there's a whole bunch of other uh, Black and other racialized communities that are that are existing in that in that community, and um, really rampant um, homelessness and people that are have a lack of housing. And I think um, you know it has this reputation as being like really an intractable problem, right? Like that it it can't be solved, and it, which is baloney. Um, it happens because we have a pipeline of people who are traumatized either through uh, the experience of colonization, residential schools, civil wars in context of their newcomers, um, divorce, car accidents and chronic pain, homelessness and being evicted and not being able to afford housing. And if you end up in any of those situations and you don't have a mechanism for otherwise dealing with your pain, of course you're going to turn to drugs 
because it takes the pain away, especially opioids. And um, I think a poverty reduction strategy is the number one way that we can support that community and then put treating um, the use of substance as uh, a medical issue rather than a criminal issue um, and providing people the proper medical supports that they need to either use drugs safely or to or to um, abstain from using drugs. Um, but more importantly, to treat their trauma because without that there there's no hope and i and i think that in many ways the downtown east side is sort of like a microcosm of all the ways that canada is failing its communities well it's been an absolute pleasure um here and of course if you've missed some of this interview you can catch it on wherever you get your podcast it'll be up in a few days after you're listening to this on radio and uh but speaking um, and listening, mainly listening to uh, some wisdom from the very Reverend uh, Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, who, as I keep repeating, is the 44th moderator, but the first Indigenous woman moderator of the United Church of Canada, here with us for three years. So really looking forward to those three years, Carmen. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, and stay tuned, because next up, another amazing woman, Sandy Hudson, founder of Black Lives Matter in Canada. Stay tuned. CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Stream us anytime at www.ciut.fm. Well, welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. And just uh, as we go to air, some news uh, here in Ontario. I know that you were, and I certainly was, reporting from site on Friday when the huge demonstration happened in front of Queen's Park, in front of the legislature buildings. Thousands and thousands of people came out and many, many unions showed their support, which was really encouraging. And guess what? When the people organize and hit the streets, politicians wake up and that's what happened. So they rescinded Bill 28, just like that, folks, just like that. In a couple of days, imagine, and we were really pushing for a general strike. So guess what? That works. <laughs> so that works. And now the hard work begins because now it's the negotiations. And so we're not there yet. So keep keep watch and keep ready to just take to the streets. Uh, talking about taking the streets, my guest this half hour is a woman that knows all about that. Uh, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter Canada, Sandy Hudson. Sandy, welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Always love speaking to you. So tell us, first of all, that we're just going to get caught up with all things Sandy. So what are you up to? We saw your graduation photos. We know you're in LA. Uh, you're now a celebrity. So talk oh to us about you. Well, I don't know if I'd say that, but I am, you know, I'm, I, I'm not uh, practicing law and I always knew going into law school that that is, was probably uh, going to be the case. And I did quite a few internships. I did one at uh, a big firm where I got to work on some cool pro bono cases. And then I did one at the um, ACLU, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union of Southern California, where I was focused on uh, policing. Um, and I did one at the Public Defender's Office, uh, 
uh, where I was uh, supporting cases of uh, people attempting to uh, be released from prison during the pandemic uh, because some new laws were passed to release a number of in inmates and uh, the case that I was working on one. So it, it was a great education, but I realized um, that practice was not for me. I really do think, as you said, you know, when we organize, we win. And as an organizer, uh, working on individual cases, which is what mostly what lawyers do, it's it's kind of a waste of my talent. But that uh, education certainly helps to bolster the type of work that I can do. So what I'm working on right now is I am writing a book about uh, defunding the police, about police abolition. And I'm really hoping that that book can serve as a conduit between communities who have really never thought about it, people who think that it is a really outrageous idea, uh, and all of the thinking that has been put behind um, this uh, this this sort of strategy to move forward in making our communities safer. Um, and, you know, what I've realized over the years is a lot of the materials that have been written um, do speak to people who are kind of already interested in abolition. So I want to write something that is for folks who really do think this is impossible um, so that we can carry them uh, to perhaps uh, some 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 new ideas, some new possibilities. Uh, this all sounds exciting and I can't wait to read it. Uh, and I'm sure there are many others because certainly that's that's the divide and it's it, huge. It's huge and profound in the United States, but it's also here, right? Uh, so the rise of the right wing just generally is global. It's not just in one place. And this this chasm between us, which is getting deeper and deeper, uh, we've got to learn to bridge it somehow. We've got to learn to broaden. Talking about that, Black Lives Matter, uh, update us. Where is the movement now? I mean, you know, it's been over two years since the murder of George Floyd. It's been well, what, at least eight years since Black Lives Matter has been around as a movement, what's happening? That's a very good question. Um, for us in Canada, lots. Uh, very exciting stuff is happening. Uh, I think that there is this sense that when people don't see us in the news that nothing is happening. But for those of us who are longtime activists like you and I, we know that 95% of activist work is behind the scenes. It's uh, a lot of nerd work <laughs> uh, for the geeks. Uh, and that is proudly what I am. And so our team has been working on uh, a couple of uh, pretty major projects. So one is that in building this Black Lives Matter Canada, we are trying to help support uh, mostly younger local activists across Canada be sustainable in their activism work. It's very hard to uh, get resources if you are from a place that's not Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver. It just so happens that it is um, a lot harder to attract eyes, dollars, and resources to any sort of um, activist work that you may be doing. So at this point, there are chapters of Black Lives Matter Canada from Vancouver to New uh, to St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador, which is so amazing um, in most every province uh, except uh, PEI and some folks up in the north from the Yukon. 
And we have uh, a few ways that we are supporting those groups in becoming sustainable. One is to provide uh, regular uh, funding for local initiatives. Uh, one is to have a bit of a school. So we have a bit of an activist school that we've been running for uh, just over a year and a half, uh, where every month we have two sessions, either on a political education or skills-based topic. And so we are helping these activists across the country build their tools toolboxes so that they can support their local community. Um, so that is the big major project. Uh, I don't know if something like this has been done uh, with as you know, black local organizations before, but certainly we have um, a council of elders that uh, that support us in helping us to um, find the, the the best way forward to support uh, this group of people. And uh, in October, we had our first national convening. Uh, where everyone came together uh, on Toronto Island to meet one another and uh, to share ideas and to to talk about how they would like the movement to move forward. And so uh, that has been uh, such a really invigorating and uh, re-inspiring moment for us. The other big project is that we have this um, this space, this headquarters uh, now uh, in Toronto on 24 Cecil Street, which is the Wild Seed Center for Arts and Activism. Um, we have just uh, two or three weeks ago, I think three weeks ago now, um, started renovations on that project. And we are, we could not be more excited. We are so over the moon with all of the support that we have gotten from, uh, from folks in the community uh, to build this project. And it's just also amazing that we're on Cecil Street, which has such an amazing history. We are right next to the house where Donald Moore started his organization to expand um, uh, Canada's immigration laws, because uh, at the time, in the late 50s and early 60s, Canada was essentially a closed door to Black immigration, unless you were coming to be a temporary foreign worker and then leave. And right on that street was where a lot of uh, the the planning was done and all of the activism took place to to shift that and and Donald Moore's organization uh, did change Canada's laws uh, to the modern point system that we have today and it's just wonderful to be on that street uh, where where there's so much great activity for change happening so that's what's really happening in Canada Lots of socialists on that street too. United Steelworkers just down the block from you. It's actually, it's across the street, in fact. Uh, the United Steelworkers too. And uh, I, I I did just just uh, you know sidebar. I did a a big wedding, one of the first post COVID of two women who married each other, and they had the reception there. So we oh, got to lovely. experience the interior, which was so much fun. Anyway, oh great. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Did you did you go see the interior of the Wild Seed Center? Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. I didn't know that. Yes. That's wonderful. I'm yeah. so glad you were able to take a look. Yeah. No, absolutely. So uh, speaking here to Sandy Hudson on the Radical Reverend Show, if you just tuned in. And uh, again, um, we're, we're both buoyant because she's on the show, but also because of the win for education workers and all of union uh, democracy, period, actually human rights in this province, which is great. Um, so Sandy, I want to just kind of 
double back a little bit. You talked about this gathering on the Toronto Islands, which sounds fantastic. Um, what were some of the ideas coming out of that? You know, wh what's what's ahead? Well, people are very much looking forward to a lot of uh, local events. So what I think is really coming through in, in our uh, national organizing is that people want to be able to build their local communities. So whether that looks like um, in Newfoundland and Labrador pro providing um, a, a school program of getting knapsacks and materials to people who need them in the Black community, or whether that look like supporting families who have had interactions uh, with police over in Peterborough. Uh, people are really interested in uh, in local events. And I really do think that that is where that sort of principle of having local communities respond to local realities is, um, you know, that speaks quite to, to my principles as well. And where we're coming together nationally is how we can support each other in those local realities. So, you know, people are really trying to figure out how they can uh, do what they can to fight back against a system that does have different local realities uh, from province to province, from city to city. Toronto doesn't look exactly the same as St. John's, but there are things that we can learn from each other. Um, so that's what uh, uh, you can uh, look forward to seeing. Also, uh, people are, these young activists, most, mostly young activists, are looking to forward to releasing some sort of platform, um, coming together to release some sort of uh, vision for what sort of policy changes they would like to see that could be national, provincial, or local in scope. So that's a project that these folks have been working on for almost a year now. So um, they're continuing to, to do that. And all of these different groups from across the country have been uh, contributing to it, both chapters and outside of the chapters, the BLM chapters, um, Black organizations in their communities. And so at some point in 2023, I expect that this major undertaking will be complete where folks can uh, can release something that says, hey, here are the things that we need to target in Canada. Here are the things that we need to target in Alberta, in Quebec. Here are the things that we need to target in our local communities. Uh, and this is what it'll really look like. So bringing the idea from Black Lives Matter, which I think a lot of people are comfortable saying now um, in 2022 uh, versus you know when we started this in 2014. Um, but bringing that idea to to a concrete policy shift because that's the thing that I think that people are uncomfortable with. They don't understand that that needs to if 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 you believe in black lives matter then that means that there are a lot of policies that need to shift and change and so we want to outline that. We want to be a little bit more clear. Speaking to our local context, in our local context here in Toronto, uh, in terms of defunding the police, never mind abolition um, at this point, but defunding even, we, of course, uh, and you may remember this, had 
uh, I mean, things have changed in terms of the power of the mayor, which to, mm-hmm. that aren't good. But um, but we did have this move by councillors to defund some modest amount, like 10 percent mm-hmm. or something that did not pass. And in fact, what happened is they got more money for body cams. So so and, and now we've got these projects happening, which we've been involved in a little bit, you know, where you have those who are trained in mental health intervention, social workers and the like, going out to mental health calls uh, and wellness checks and not police. But again, very, very low funding, very limited uh, access to those. I still see cops um, doing those all the time. And the cops are trying to get more um, people that have been involved in our, you know, anti-racism work have you know, done the, the this is a shuffle almost of, you know, going to the police services board and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, but what can I sort of practical, I guess what I'm looking for is practical suggestions. How do we stop this log jam in this town? Because you know Toronto, right? Like, how yeah. do we get defunding actually back on the agenda and actually happening? I actually think there's a couple things that that need to be done. Um, one thing that I will mention is that I do think that the the uh, municipal elections that have just occurred are represent a bit of an opportunity, because there are a number of new faces that are on council, um, a number of of people who um, we know support defunding the police or have supported. Uh, Black Lives Matter in policy initiatives in the past, most notably um, is Asma Malik, who really did push for uh, the Toronto District School Board to no longer have police in the Toronto District School Board. So to see someone like her um, be be elected to council, I think that that represents an opportunity, despite the fact that the mayors now have stronger powers. Yes, it still represents an opportunity to see some of these changes on camp council. So um, uh, that makes me, I'm a bit heartened by that. The other thing is I think that organizations, we need to do a little bit more education with organizations, uh, local powerful organizations like unions and other not-for-profit organizations. I think that There are too many people who I have spoken to who will say to me, yes, I agree with this, but this is going to make us like other people won't support us if we if we publicly say this. And that feels feels so much like 2014. It feels so much like 2014 when we would say Black Lives Matter and we would be contacted by organizations who would say, you know, I I want to support this. But if I say that. You know, people will think we're against white people and and, you know, they won't support our organization. So here's here's what we can do in the background. We need people to be publicly and and, you know, unapologetically in favor of these things. And that's you know, that's part of the reason why I really want to write this book, because I I think that for anyone who has been doing the research around policing and just how destructive policing is it becomes like like absurd you're just like how is it that all of this information is out there about how unhelpful police are generally for for like anything that we would need police for 
and how destructive they are to so many communities. And no one has said, well, obviously we need to take money away from this and put money towards this. Like, I just think some of the things are so obvious, but people don't can't see the path because there's just so much propaganda and there is so much um, in our world from television to the news that tells us, uh, you know, the police are good, the police are good, the police are good. So um, it's going to take organizations because, you know, it's it's institutions that are already organized that can really help shape um, public perception on these. So I'm, I'm talking about unions. I'm talking about religious institutions. I'm talking about um, educational institutions. It's going to take these institutions, um, you know, not being afraid to say the right thing. Uh, to move the needle forward, just like it did for, for 2022. And what we did in the interim period between 2014 to 2016, because that was another flashpoint year, so from 2016 to 2020, to, to 2020, so many activists were in the background doing workshops, educating organizations, trying to get these organizations ready for a moment like 2020. And that is again occurring right now. The defund the police movement in 2020 did, did did move the needle. People have started thinking about this in a way that they never have before. What we need now is for people to start talking about it and to not be afraid to talk about it. I can't tell you how many MPPs from the NDP and uh, and federal MPs called me during that year to say how is how what is a way that I can support this because I believe in this without saying these words. It's like, you, you can't say it, you can't do it without saying these words. So the, the political will is there from some of our representatives, but they're afraid. And so we need to show them that they don't need to be afraid and that this support can exist from the ground, which just means a lot of education work. Uh, speaking to Sandy Hudson here on the Radical Reverend Show, always a delight. Uh, yeah, fear the fear fact, like fear is what holds us all back. And all the time, I, I don't know. I mean, I I, I look at the, you know the kids, children in Iran. I, I mean, people who are willing to put their lives literally on the line. They're being killed and imprisoned by the thousands. Uh, yeah, we in North America can stand up just a little bit more. I think just a little bit more. Come on now, folks. Yeah, <laughs> come on. Okay, Sandy, I, there's a momentous thing happening today as this airs in the United States, which is where you are right now. Yes. Okay, so how, like, Black Lives Matter in the midterms, talk about the intersection there. Um, and also, uh, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, you know, we hear all sorts of things and polls, whatever. But what do you feel? What's in your gut about the midterms? Yeah, and I'll I'll say, I mean... I will mention in terms of sort of some of the scandals that have come out from BLM in the United States. One thing that I, I do want to say about that is that it has weakened the movement. And I think that that those um, those campaigns were funded and targeted by the right wing. And they make use of um, one of the hardest uh, kind of manifestations of anti-blackness to crack through which is that people are very very willing to believe that black people are not good with money and are doing something untoward 
with money. And I mean, in 2014, when we started Black Lives Matter in Canada, the our elder activists locally in Canada, the first thing they said to us was make sure everything with finances is very well documented because they will come after you on money. That's what they did with the Black Action Defense Committee. That is what they did in the 60s. It's what they did in the 70s. It always happens. And so for for folks who have been kind of, um, you know, taken aback by some of what they may have read in the papers, one thing that I do want to say is you should always be a little bit skeptical. If there was if there was a lot of like criminal fraud from these sorts of black activists, the police would be clamoring over themselves to incarcerate these people. And that is one thing that people should always keep in mind and try to dig through, find um, the documents that people are talking about to see if this stuff is true, because it's a lot of false, false, falsehoods. That being said, uh, people, so what that does is it, it really does impact individuals' individ ability to remain a part of the movement and to contribute in ways that they have been before. So um, the support from the ground is so important. But part of what's been happening now for those individuals, for those people who are still very much involved, because uh, the movement continues even when it's weakened, is that people have really been trying uh, to support, of course, good policy to come through um, during the midterm elections and to support, um, by and large, Democratic candidates to get elected. And for those states like California that have a lot of referendums, ballot measures, to support good um, good policies. For example, in California, they're trying to codify um, the right to reproductive care into their constitution. Now, that's a very different strategy than the type that we take in Canada for various reasons. There's there's reasons why that may make sense in California and it doesn't make sense in Canada. But that's what's happening right that now. And these are the stakes. There are also a lot of stakes for trans children, trans youth. Um, you know, there's this is a battleground uh, for uh, people across uh, America, a lot of these really Republican areas are attempting to remove um, gender affirming care for trans and gender nonconforming youth. And um, that, of course, uh, you know, is is devastating. It has a devastating impact and is sometimes fatal if people can't get that care that they need. The other really big thing that I'm really scared of personally is how much work the Republicans have put into the last few years controlling the elections themselves. From uh, the people who count the ballots to the people who ratify the election results and uh, gerrymandering as well, uh, changing the electoral districts so that they benefit certain um, the wealthy, the powerful, and more white communities rather than um, others. And that, quite frankly, the Democrats dropped the ball on that. The Republicans are going to have a lot of power uh, to to affect the election after the fact. And that is what really, really terrifies me right now. Um, and if that tactic is successful in these midterm elections, I think in 2024, it's just it's going to get worse. And so I think 
honestly, it's hard not to think that we're seeing the decline of American democracy um, right now. That is literally what's at stake. So, I, you know, I don't know what it's going to look like. Speaking to Sandy Hudson here, uh, you, you you mentioned we just have a few minutes left. You mentioned the the Democrats dropping the ball wouldn't be the first time. Uh, I mean, from from the vantage point of kind of north of the border, we I mean, it looks terrifying to us. Talk about voter suppression, um, absolutely, and uh, and of course, then there's the control of media outlets too. Um, uh, so, what should the Democrats have done? When should they have done it? Well, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to 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 answer that question because one thing that I've learned up here or down here is that the elections are bizarre <laughs> in the United States. You know, the states control so many of the rules around the federal election, which is just not how we do things in Canada, right? Um, and that, to me, like that, getting that education was such a bizarre thing to understand. Like, you know, it, it could be the case that people who were formerly incarcerated can vote in California, but felons are not allowed to 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 vote um, in in Florida, and th those differences exist across America. Like it might be the case that you can vote in California just by showing your driver's license. And in, in, in Georgia, there are more hurdles for you to pass in order to register to vote. And that to me makes no sense. But the Republican Party was able to effectively make sure that they knew all of the rules for specific battleground states and get their people um, elected in these kind of smaller elections, elections for judges, for secretary of state, for the people who control the um, electoral system um, and really concentrate on those smaller um, those smaller fights. And the Democrats quite frankly, just didn't put in enough energy behind that stuff. And they're really going to feel it, I think. I think it's going to be really, really terrible. Uh, you're so right. When I was in politics, we were down hobnobbing with you know state reps all the time. And it's such a shambles at the state level, that, that political system. And for one thing, most states don't pay you a living income to be in those jobs. So you're in somebody's pocket. You have to be to raise yes. money to run and to continue to run. Uh, so yeah, I mean, for all sorts of reasons, I hear you, you're so right. And uh, you know, we, there's some some states are passing laws that they won't allow people to, to observe the vote to make sure that it's okay to have observers, like a basic democratic principle. I mean, gosh, <laughs> it's gonna be terrible. Yes. Hear you on that on that uh, gloomy note. <laughs> Thanks, Sandy. Um, and uh, and of course, you know, we hope that you come back. I'm just this is completely personal. Just hope that you come back here one day with you know uh, banners flying and bells ringing, and um, and you know just I'm just put, putting this in your ear. I'm sure not the first one. Think of running up here. Just saying. <laughs> just saying. Anyway, um, uh, uh, thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Always a pleasure. Do keep in touch. And uh, and for you out there in listener land, uh, I, we love to hear from you. And I always respond. And your and your ideas, your comments, your kudos. Uh, fundraising's coming up. Don't forget to send us some money. We need it. Alternative radio, blah, blah. Uh, so keep with us. And until next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Solidarity to all the workers out there. <laughs>